everybody. Welcome to the October 9th, 2015 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Gabrielle Bryant, filling in for Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy dropping out of the race for John Boehner's seat as House Speaker. Patty, uh, excuse me, Patricia Calhoun from Westward, what do you think? Well, I think I'm about the only person whose name hasn't been thrown into this ring yet. Amazing that McCarthy pulled out so quickly on this. Um, he did stumble a little bit recently, but I just learned that you do not have to be a sitting congressman to be the Speaker of the House, so I have one suggestion. While other people are floating Newt Gingrich, how about bringing back Tom Tancredo? That is exactly what the Republicans deserve right now for the mess they've gotten themselves into. Well, that's one perspective. David Koppel with the Independence, Law, uh, Independence Institute in DU Law School, what do you think? Boehner is more clever than people have given him credit for. This looks like a Frank Underwood level move where he says I'm going to resign and then hmm, some chaos takes place and it looks like I'm going to be staying on for a while till everybody sorts things out. Um, so, which might be okay. Uh, the Republicans are having a conflict and there is it's partly a conflict between their donor class, which is on the in the Boehner camp, and their voter class, which is in a different camp. And it makes it hard to go in one direction. Paul Ryan, of course, is the uh, the one guy who could unify that. But if it takes him a while to work that out, you know, in a way, I think that's okay. It's in France, you don't even get to vote for your member of the legislature. You just vote for the party, and then the party gets a certain share of the vote. And so the legis you have the party has a list of who's our first 300 people, and if we get so many votes number up everybody one through 158 goes to the legislature, the National Assembly. Here you vote for the individual candidate, and I think that's good, and it makes things more more chaotic, but in a good way that leads to more responsiveness to, to the people. Pinfiltate with QTAC, right? what would you say? Well, thankfully, we're not friends, um, and unfortunately, <laughs> John Boehner is not as smart as Frank Underwood, or we wouldn't be in this mess to begin with. I, I, I think this is amazing because you know, you, you look at Boehner, you look at McCarthy, you look at all of these folks, and what they fought and scrapped so hard for was to get a majority of the House so they could run things. And now everybody's running away from the challenge of running the House, which I just think is ridiculous. I, I don't think this serves the country well. I don't think this is good. I know it's captivating TV, and, and it's, it, it gives us plenty to talk about here, but this is disastrous. The debt ceiling's got to be addressed by the end of the month. You've got to handle some budget things next month. And we don't know who's going to be in charge of the House. Well, we do know it's going to be John Boehner, because I don't know if they'll ever get this straightened out before these votes occur. Um, I wish he were this calculating and smart and figured out, you know, he'd have people just admit, well, we really miss you now, John. Don't go anywhere. Stay with us. I don't think that was the plan. And I think this is going to get worse before it gets any better. Well, this is definitely a serious matter. I seen in a political article earlier today that said, friends don't let friends run for House Speaker. Uh, Natasha Gardner with 5280 Magazine, what would you say? I think that sums it up pretty well. I, the, the Republicans are looking for Phoenix to rise from the ashes here, but no one wants to rise to the occasion. What's becoming obvious is we might owe Boehner some combat pay retroactively. I mean, it seems like what he was dealing with was even worse than what we probably were aware of. You know, I, I just, when I hear these absolute statements that you know, only vote 
difficult for you if you never do this or you have to do this, that type of conversation and rhetoric happening in, in D.C. I keep on thinking about my mom when I was a teenager saying that I couldn't use killer words, like never. These are words that kill conversation that just stop it from happening. So short of sending my mom to D.C., which might be a good idea, actually, I think we maybe need to start making it a requirement for politicians to be able to compromise, like, you know, in addition to age and, and residency and other things, that we have to make sure that they have the ability to at least entertain the concept of compromising on issues. All right, let's get right to it. Funding for the National Western Complex is at issue this week as Denver leaders met with the Colorado Economic Development Commission on Monday. Denver is requesting close to $130 million to complete the project through the Regional Tourism Act. According to the Denver Business Journal, third-party analysts suggest Denver overestimated the, the number of visitors that the project would bring, and it only needs a max of $81 million spread out over 36 years. Patty, what would you say? Well, I'd say this is a project that's going to have some big hurdles coming up in the next month. First of all, you have to have the vote November 3rd by the residents of Denver of whether or not we want to extend the lodging and car rental tax, not just for a while, but forever, in order to fund the National Western Center. That vote comes before the state makes its decision on whether or not it wants to put in $131 million or whatever amount it wants to put in. So it's, an, it's awkward timing for the city. And speaking of awkward, the, the governor just set up a commission on Indian mascots, American, uh, Native American mascots. He should have included mascots for 2C. What are we doing with Larimer the Longhorn? If you've seen those commercials, they are not exactly going to sway the Denver of 2015 to vote for what looks like a $720 million tax if you read the ballot measure. No one loves Denver as a cow town and its western roots more than I do, but the fact is this big multi-million dollar complex, almost a billion dollars by the time it's done, is not just for the stock show if it's going to work. It is for the neighborhood. It is for CSU. There are a lot of different parts of it, and no one is going to authorize the, the extension of that tax just so people can go drink in a bar, much as I salute them with some cowboys. David, now what are your thoughts on this? Do you think this is something that will eventually fly with the city of Denver? Well, I, I sure hope it doesn't. Uh, Thad Texa, who is a political science professor at the University of Colorado at Denver, has been speaking out against it. Uh, you know, there's no formal opposition, and you've got, as he points out, there's a million dollars in this campaign, 200,000 of which came from a public-private partnership of the city government itself and, and corporate donors. And he very accurately says that if, if you look at how much these people like the construction companies and the various other corporate welfare queens are putting in, um, they are getting out a huge investment. I mean, it's, it's the best. Spend a million bucks, and then you get over 80 times, even if we cut it down to what it, it should be, $81 million, that's a, you know, a pretty huge amount of money. Uh, so a, a wise investment for them, but not for the taxpayers. Because as he also points out, imagine instead of doing this concentrated welfare project, and cowboys traditionally have not been on welfare, so I, I think that would be a, a bad change in, in tradition. Um, you took that money and, and put it, you could put $70 million in projects in every single council district. 
think how much good could be done. I mean, take one district, one eleventh of the city, seventy million dollars in there to do whatever, improve the parks, a, a senior center, uh, bike paths, all, all kinds of, of great things could be done that would really benefit the Denver voters, uh, the people of Denver, rather than this narrowly concentrated uh, benefit to special interests. So it's something where maybe we could spread the wealth a little bit, if you will. Pin, what's your take on this? Well, I, I think the proponents would tell you that's what happens, that if you invest in this project, you generate economic activity, and it benefits all of us because of the revenue going into tax coffers. But I think this is going to be an interesting issue. I think this may well be the test of whether people in Denver are paying attention. David's right, there's no formal opposition, but Patty's also right, when you look at the ballot question, the number is enough to choke on when you look at the dollars that are involved. And the fundamental issue, I think, in the minds of voters is going to have to be, why are we doing this for the National Western? Set aside whether you support the promotion of agricultural and Western culture and everything else. I think the question is, why are we doing this for an enterprise that traditionally has struggled, has not gotten support, which is why the consultant said the attendance numbers were overinflated, and have been on the brink of solvency for a while. And part of it's because it only happens during a very, very narrow two to three week period of the year, and they haven't done a good job of utilizing the asset, the venue, during the rest of the year, so they're always struggling for money. They're broke. And the question is, can you really subsidize and save an enterprise that may have fundamentally some other issues uh, in terms of its operation? And, and I just don't know if Denver voters are paying close enough attention to think that far down the path. And it's easy to, to do that and then decide, well, this is something we ought to support because it's good for the economy. But that tends to be the reflexive answer anymore. And I don't know if it, if it bears out in this case, particularly if even the state is questioning what level of support to give it. And by the way, David, cowboys and ranchers have gotten welfare. It's called farm subsidy support. So. <laughs> <laughs> now, Natasha, this is something that's going to could potentially, you know, cost a lot of money. What's your thoughts on it, and how do you think Denver voters will sway? I think the stock show should start a contest where people can guess what the final do dollar amount is going to be and give whoever guesses that right when it is finally completed a lifetime entrance fee into the stock show events. I think that as we're quibbling about this back and forth, you know, how many visitors are here or not, or will there be less while I-70 is being widened or not, like, those, those are good questions, and we should try to get as close to the real number as possible, but I think anyone who's dealt with construction knows they come in late and they come in over budget, and this project is definitely going to do that. I do think that the, the question of the I-70 widening and how that will impact both um, the construction and the development of this site is, is really key because they're kind of distanced from each other as we discuss them. We talk about I-70 separately in a silo, we talk about the stock show separately in a silo, but we're basically going to blow up the center of Denver to work on both of these projects potentially at the same time or it's certainly overlapping and I don't think we've had enough discussions yet about what that means to both commuters to travelers to visitors but also the long-term health of an organization which we've already discussed is struggling to, to maintain its its hold within the Denver community so there's a lot of unanswered questions here I think uh, this will come up at this table again <laughs> All righty. Well, we'll get into the next topic. Governor John Hickenlooper released his plan to address climate change this week and was met with mixed reviews. According to the Denver Post, environmentalists say that the plan does a good job of identifying the problems but falls short on solutions. Meanwhile, Colorado's oil and gas industry reps argue that the plan diminishes its role in addressing climate change. David, what do you think about this? 
I, I think both critiques are, are, are valid. Some of the things in the plan seem kind of pointless. For example, one, one key point, as reported in the Denver Post, is to help utilities identify how they can save money by using renewables, which is a, a euphemism for sub, subsidized wind welfare producers. But utilities all the time are thinking about how they can save money. You know, they, they have a fairly narrow focus, and they have people on staff all the time trying to save money. You know, Excel is not some bunch of adults who are out there thinking, well, I, you know, probably there is some way we could make more money, but we just can't think of anything. Oh, thank you. The state of Colorado has a guy who's really good at math, and he came in and showed us, holy cow, we can make 10 million more bucks by using renewables. <laughs> you know, uh, utilities don't need the government to help them with arithmetic and, and economics. I'm not an expert on climate, but the people who are like the Cato Institute's Patrick Michaels, um, former climatologist of Virginia, say that global warming is real, but it's also uh, this crisis thing is exaggerated. But for the people who do think it's really a crisis, the way I can tell that they're serious or not is whether they support nuclear power, which has its own risks, but on the whole has a good safety record, especially with the, the most modern type of plants, and would drastically reduce the use of fossil fuels. And if we're really in some kind of crisis that it's going to be the end of the world if we don't stop using fossil fuels, then anybody who is serious would have to be for nuclear power because wind and solar and all this other stuff is never going to come close to matching the demand and the need. So you can use that as a litmus test to see if somebody who says it's a crisis actually thinks so. Now, it was said that Governor Hickenlooper, being a former um, environmentalist himself, uh, he was put on somewhat of a political island with this. What do you think about this topic? Well, yeah, as a former geologist, I mean, he's got some familiarity with, with, with the topic. But I think it's interesting. When I look at the criticism of the plan, it strikes me as he's being criticized from the environmental community and the oil and gas community, and no one really likes this plan everybody's found flaws and problems with it. And, and I've not read the plan, I, so I, I, I can see that, but it seems to me just based on what the two sort of polar extremes are saying about the plan, uh, there are times when I think if you're going to pursue an initiative like this, you need to fall down squarely someplace and just put it out there and go for it. And it sounds like the plan doesn't go for either conserving the environment or encouraging a robust development of renewables as well as oil and gas and traditional fossil fuels or nuclear. It just sort of says there's a problem and we ought to be fixing it and let's talk about it some more. And I don't know if that's really a plan. Uh, so, you know, I, I hope that from this we'll, we'll sort of generate a conversation and something more concrete with action steps will flow from that dialogue at that point. Because it sounds like what we've got is everybody's hugely disappointed and the governor's standing in the middle, not quite certain which way to move. 
Coloradans are generally known as people who care about the environment. So I know that this is this is a big deal for a lot of people. What would you say? Yes, it's a definite political hot potato in Colorado, and probably becoming more and more so every year. Um, it's it's interesting as I looked at the plan. One of the things, um, if anyone was expecting a blueprint of where we go from here, I don't think that this set it up. This was more of a conversational. How do we feel about this? What are some things? There are a lot of good T-shirt slogan type, you know, buzzword um, topics that came out of this. But I, I think that that's what it is. It's just a start of where do we go from here. And the problem is that this, we've been in that, that state of where do we go from here for quite some time. You know, since the re renewable um, energy mandates in 2004, you know, this was a big part of Ritter's administration around 2008, and here we are in 2015. And I'm not sure I have a good sense of where Colorado is moving on this issue, and I don't have a better sense after the release of this plan either. Patty, uh, what would you say about this? Do you think global warming exists, for one, and would you say that this is a good plan to address climate change? Well, I would have to say David's um, citing of the, Culp of the Cato Institute expert is a good one, which is all evidence points to there being climate change, but that it is not as sky is falling as people have said. I wish Hickenlooper had mentioned nuclear power because we would have had an explosion in this state bigger than Chernobyl if he had even begun to suggest that was a solution. One of the things we have to recognize, of course, is that Colorado is not an island in this. I mean, we are a small, tiny part of a picture that is a global concern, not just a statewide or a national concern, and that's a conversation that is going to be happening more and more in the months to come. I think, frankly, the fact that no one's happy with this plan, except maybe Governor Hickenlooper, who has a lot of environmental supporters and is a geologist, so probably has a broader view than most of us. Maybe he likes the plan. It comes out in the middle, and if everyone on both sides hates it, then he's probably doing something right. Well, let's get to this one. A Denver jury reached a non-guilty verdict this morning in the case involving Terrence Roberts, who was charged with first-degree attempted murder and first-degree aggravated assault after shooting Hassan Jones in 2013. Roberts was a former gang member before turning his life around and devoting his career to anti-gang efforts in Denver and surrounding communities. Pintate as being one of the attorneys at the table, what would you say? Did you think it would come to this, or what were your thoughts? I'm surprised. I did not think a jury would acquit him of this. Um, the facts were such, his defense was basically self-defense, but the other person didn't brandish a weapon, um, and fear of reprisal and retaliation because the gang members he was working with had accused him of being a snitch, a police informant. But he shot this guy five times, and at least three of the shots was while the guy was lying on the ground. So it's, you know, I, I, I didn't think the facts would work in his favor, but this was a unanimous jury verdict of acquittal which says there was something else in this case that struck the, the jurors or rang true with them, and they decided to let him go. I, I suppose on the one hand, it's, it's positive for those who, who want to continue to work in the anti-gang movement, and sometimes the most effective voices there are people who've been down that path before and then have decided to pursue another direction for their life, uh, which, which he has done. Uh, but this is surprising. Um, but that's the way our criminal justice system works, and, and I defer to the jury. They heard all of this, and they considered it, and they deliberated, and this is their decision. But he probably needs to think uh, twice about how he handles himself in the future uh, in, in pursuing this effort. 
Now, Natasha, I know um, Terrence did an interview with 5280 Magazine at some point. I'm not sure the year that it came out. Um, and it, he, he was really influential in the community. Can you talk to me about what this means? Well, I think that that's what's important about this is that it, it, this is a moment in, in this man's life that's obviously a tragic moment. But he also had a life of helping his community as well. And in fact, um, 5280 had an article with him um, after the shooting. Westward had an article as well, which I thought was brilliant by Jill Warner, who looked at the children that he had helped through his nonprofit and looked at how this was affecting them and how they were moving forward. And and so this is one of those situations where, yes, it's about his trial, it's about what he did, it's about his acquittal, absolutely. But more importantly, I think it's time to refocus back on what he was trying to do with the rest of his life, which was rehabilitating the Park Hill neighborhood, finding opportunities for youth outside of gang, gangs, finding after-school programs for these kids. And he was quite successful in doing this. Um, the wonderful thing is there are a variety of people in the Park Hill neighborhood who have sort of picked up where he left off and have been able to make some really great advancements in that, both physically in the Holly Square area, but also throughout the neighborhood. And that's important to focus on as we look at the trial. Um, now, we all know what happened um, based on the reports. It's something that we're not going to be able to forget, even though the case um, was dismissed. What do you think is up next for Terrence? Well, I would hope he somehow manages to get back into his anti-gang work. Prodigal Son, the organization he had founded, did really great work. He was instrumental in bringing back Holly Square after a gang arson. We would not have all the developments there today if it hadn't been for Terrence really leading the charge years ago. His nonprofit has basically disappeared. It's completely changed form. It's not named Prodigal Son anymore. The kids, and there were hundreds of kids they helped have gone on for the most part. They were very supportive of Terrence. We did talk to him last spring and it was a really compelling interview. This is when I, I talked last week about this because it is such a tragic thing. Whatever happened and who knows if we'll ever really get to the bottom of it. Fascinating that the man he shot, Hassan Jones, chose not to testify, which I think has to, had to really swing the trial. He was mad at the DA's office because he had been put on trial for attempted murder in a drive-by shooting this summer. He, too, was acquitted in pretty short time. So I'm guessing the DA is going to be looking a lot at how they prosecute attempted murder charges by gang members or former gang members. David, you're the other lawyer at the table. What's your perspective on the case? I agree with Penn that, that you have to respect the jury because they're the ones who sat and listened to all the evidence and, and could evaluate people's credibility by looking at them while they testified. And there were facts on in the defendant's favor, like uh, uh, somebody said something to him, a gang member, which basically indicated an attack was imminent, not like five minutes away, but, but seconds away. So the, the jury saw, heard all the facts, and I've got no reason to dispute their decision. All right, we're going to wrap up the show now. Let's get to our favorite part, uh, Disgrace of the Week. Caddy, start us off. Arapahoe High School. I have to say their anti-grinding at the prom um, <laughs> edict, that edict should be stripped off like a prom dress. The fact is, if the kids are grinding on the dance floor, they are not grinding in the parking lot. I don't know why they think that, that monitoring their dancing behavior 
in the school is going to change what's going to happen outside the school. I came from the days when they would walk around with a yardstick at the eighth grade dancers, dances to be sure you were a foot apart. And I can truly tell you, it did not change what happened once you left the dance floor. That's hilarious. I think they even like showed a video of what grinding actually is so the kids know not. And David's going to demonstrate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. David, take it away. Well, Patty was, I think, getting more action in eighth grade than, than I was, for sure. <laughs> Um, I would criticize the government's now admitted, uh, good for the government for admitting defeat in its long war on whole milk. When you think back about all the government nutrition information that's been coming out over the course of our entire lives, most of it's turned out to be wrong. Maybe the U.S. Department of Agriculture should focus on its core things, like giving welfare to farmers and ranchers, rather than telling people what to eat, because it's always wrong. It would probably be safer to do the opposite of how the U.S. government tells you to, to eat. In fact, in, for whole milk, it, was, it would be safe to do the exact opposite. Pin, what's your uh, discourse? Uh, the coalition of Republican House members who have decided that, that their points of view are more important than the government working or the welfare of the nation, so that they're going to hold the U.S. House con uh, hostage until they get the speaker of their choosing. Um, I would hope that as a government we would be better than this. History repeating itself, uh, Natasha? Well, speaking of repeating itself, I was going to talk about some of the reactions to the Oregon shooting. Unfortunately, there was another shooting last night in Arizona. Um, a topic at this table today was about gun violence. I really don't think this is what our founders were talking about, um, this terror in our community relating to the right to bear arms. We have to have a, a smarter conversation about this that still retains those rights, but does something to change this repetitive news cycle. And I know a Castle Rock man sounds like he was involved in that as well. Um, Patty, would say something nice. Well, the big Freedom of Information Coalition is in town this week, and one of the things they're doing is celebrating Joyce Meskus tonight. Joyce Meskus, the founder of the Tattered Cover, has been an incredible asset in Denver. It's impossible to imagine what the liter literary and arts culture would be like without the Tattered Cover. David? Nothing can follow that, but to the, the DU hockey team, uh, which had a great season last season and is starting a new one. Pim? Uh, Joyce Meskus. Natasha? Uh, there's a uh, playground in Aurora that is now wheelchair, wheelchair accessible for kids, which I think is a great addition to our community, but what a great thing for kids who are using wheelchairs or other um, devices to explore their world. That's great that they have that for them. Uh, let's, uh, that's all the time we have for tonight. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please also tune in this Wednesday, October 14th at 7 p.m. for the broadcast premiere of the locally produced documentary, Education, Inc., followed by a live discussion panel moderated by Ed Sardella. Remember that you can catch any part of the show or CIO postgame online, and be sure to check out the CIO podcast on iTunes. For everyone here at Channel 12, I'm Gabrielle Bryant. Thank you so much for watching. Have a good night. Thank you.